And now, The Low Post. Welcome to The Low Post Podcast. It's Tuesday morning, and I remember when this guy was a was an NBA player and sometimes slummed it on the occasional podcast, and now, now he's just a media superstar. He's calling games for the worldwide leader in sports with Richard Jefferson. He's got his own podcast, The Old Man and the Three, which now is like it's like spawning a tree of sub podcasts like the Greg Popovich coaching tree. JJ Redick, how are you? I'm good, man. I, I, I can't believe I've been retired for over two and a half years and working at ESPN for two years. And this is the first time you've ever invited me on the show. I just, it's shocking oh, to me that I had oh to wait. This long. We're not, we're not doing that. We're just not going to, we're just not going to do this. We're not going to do it. Um, JJ, uh, night one of the official elimination portion of the in-season tournament happened. Um, my stance all along, when I even had Evan Walsh, the one of the architects of this on my podcast in Vegas in the summer, has been, I don't understand why anyone thinks this is like a, a bad idea. To me, it was like no harm, no foul. Like what's, what's the worst thing that happens? The regular season in November stays like exactly the same quality and we get some funny courts. I think it's clearly been a success. I don't think it's been quite as much as a success as some of the television broadcasts are really trying to speak into existence. But last night, to me, particularly Pacers-Celtics, was just proof of concept. That atmosphere in Indiana seemed incredible. And I want to start with the Pacers because when we were bouncing around topics, I said to you, there are three teams in the league right now who are flirting with top five in offense, bottom five in defense. And the Kings kind of did that last year as well. And it's the Pacers who are first in offense by a mile and now 28th in defense. The Hawks and the Mavericks who are down to seventh in offense and I think 25th in defense. So they're on the edge. And I just, I find that, that it's not a model. It's not like those teams are trying to be bad at defense, but I find that type of team, and now we're seeing it frequently this year, very interesting. And I wondered about what you thought about its viability in the postseason because, look, look, as bad as the Pacers' defense is, they're eighth in net rating. If you're eighth in net rating, you're like a good team. I under, I don't understand. If, if you're this good on offense, you have a chance to win a playoff series. And I thought last night, last night was qualitatively the best defensive game the Pacers have played. That was a game where they decided collectively, we don't want to be a bottom five defense team. We don't think we can win playoff games and big games playing that way. It was their third lowest points per possession figure allowed for the season, but the other two were San Antonio and Washington. So I'm calling it their best defense of the season. So why don't we start there? What did you see out of Indiana's defense against a Boston team that was missing Porzingis that shot 12 of 41 from three? So throw the caveats out there by shot quality. Congratulations to the Celtics by shot quality. They won last night. They get nothing for that. They're eliminated from the in-season tournament. Hang the shot quality Vegas banner. What did you see from the Pacers defensively last night that was different? And just sort of like, how fun was that game? That's my other open-ended question. Yeah. I think there's a lot to sort of unpack there. Uh, I, I want to start with the defense because you touched on a couple of things that immediately stu stood out to me. Uh, number one was the shot quality Boston got. So 
a lot of hunting and targeting Tyrese Halliburton. And there were times where it looked like the normal Pacers defense, uh, where he's just getting blown by layup at the rim, that Tatum sort of Steve Smith move he had on the, the left wing where he gets the dunk help is super late. Um, then there were other moments where, and I didn't look up the shot quality this morning on second spectrum, but there were other moments where they targeted him and they just missed shots. And so I also agree with you because I watched, I think Tyrese Halliburton, I, everybody thinks I'm biased on this. Like he's my guy, he's my boy, he's my friend. And I, I, I like, I'm pumping this. No, he's awesome. He's awesome. I love watching the Pacers play. That also to me was their best defensive game because I think about, and this is going to lead me to a second point, which I want to unpack with you a little bit. I think about second efforts a lot in the NBA, right? Their initial efforts really stood out to me last night. I thought it was the best they were in terms of that initial closeout. Uh, the best they were in terms of on ball, in terms of like switching point of contact. It was, for the most part, there are obviously mistakes. There's mistakes in every NBA game. It was the best that I'd seen all season from the Pacers. And then there was some bad stuff too. To me, it was their second effort. So they, they, they hunt Halliburton. They create a good shot. They get a decent closeout. You know, instead of a six-foot gap, there's a three-foot gap. It's little stuff like that. When when you kind of frame this question about the Pacers and the Hawks and the Mavs, I, I, I go back a little bit to Denver last year where they had this great offense, and it's like, can they be average defensively? And what we saw over the course of the season and specifically in the playoffs – and we've seen it at times this year when they've been at full strength, is their rotations behind the pick and roll are on point. They're in the right spots. It, Stan used to always, you can be in the right spot, but be wrong because your effort is not good enough. Denver has really cleaned that up over the last season and a half. And so when we talk about these dominant offenses, and I'll throw the Kings in there, I'll throw the Kings in there because I, I there I have a list of teams. I know we were going to talk about the weird teams. I have a list of incomplete teams, and I think the Kings are one of those teams to me. When you have a great offense and you know night to night, we're going to create good shots and we have enough skilled players that we're going to be in the game because we can score and we can score in bunches. You don't have to be a top 10 defense. You don't have to be a top five defense. If your identity is on the offensive side of the ball, and you are an okay defense, you're going to have a chance to win. And I, I think with the Pacers, the thing that has been lacking to me has been the initial action in terms of intensity, but then the second side, it's like, unless Miles Turner's on one one night, they're just giving up easy points, and they're taking the ball out and running up and trying to score. And, and that, to me, is like, that's the thing they got to close up. It's like, some level of intensity and some level of effort on the second action, on the on the rotation, on the low man. They're just not good there. And I thought last night, for the most part, they were good. They were better. Yeah, there's carnival basketball, and then there's real NBA playoff basketball where elements of the carnival are still there. And Tyrese Halliburton, by the way, 
I don't know any, the whole, like, I, I didn't know that you got this, like, oh, JJ's just speaking up for like, that's got to be over here. Just 27 points, 12 assists, only two and a half turnovers, which is like the most underrated part of his game is he does not turn the ball over given how often he has it on 52% shooting, 45% on threes, 60% on twos. He's shooting 62% on floaters and 52% on long twos. It's just ridiculous what he's doing. And I remember talking to him two seasons before last season for my five most intriguing players column I read every year. And he was talking about, it's remarkable. It was remarkable for me to go back and read that column because he and I talked a lot about how, you know, he's going to face more switches and more defensive attention. And some teams are going to try to dare him to score one-on-one. And like he said, you know, I don't have, I'm not like an incredible blow away athlete in terms of speed and leaping ability. And like, I've had some trouble finishing around the basket. He also talked about like, this is his language he used. He's like, I I spent this whole summer coming to grips with, I'm going to be, I'm going to have to be a little bit more of a quote asshole on offense. Like I'm going to have to hunt my shot more. And to read those comments and watch, and he talked about then how the key to his one-on-one scoring was going to be the threat of his step back three and and how we could get defenders off balance and then blow by them. And like, boy, has that come to fruition. He's just, uh, he's in the conversation for, I mean, first team all NBA has already been thrown out. Like, sure, that's going to be, that's going to, now there's no positions. We're going to see how that goes. There are not, if we sat here and ranked the best offensive players in the NBA, I don't know how many guys we would we would name before we got to Tyrese Halliburton. We could do it right now off the top of our heads. If you, I mean, it's Jokic, Curry. Probably you got to put Durant there just because of what he's doing and his height. I mean, I'm 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 going Luca. I guess. I mean, like he's been on par with what Luca has done. Like it's it's a very short list at this point. It is, and I'm so glad you went with the best offensive players and not the MVP. Because I have yeah, the MVP plays in Denver. Yeah, no, I, I, well, I have also put a, a like a fifty game limit on any MVP talk for this season, and uh, no matter how much I get baited into that, I'm not going to go there until we're past the fifty game mark. Um, when I think about the best offensive players, there's the skill set component, and the person that immediately jumps to mind is Kevin Durant. Right. He's got every skill. But I think there's something about James Harden's comments that apply to Tyrese Halliburton here and certainly applies to Jokic, which is they are the system. You can create a great offense just based on how they play basketball, regardless of the skill set. It's how they play. And I know they're very different players, but there is a similarity between Jokic and Halliburton in that there's a joy in the pass. There's a joy in the connectivity. Um, I'm sure you read the Ringer article from three weeks ago about Tyrese. Uh, There were a lot of things that really stood out, but I think what stood out the most was the word joy that was talked about over and over again. And it's like, now the Tyrese Halliburton skip after a step back three in the fourth quarter is becoming a thing, right? It's like it the, the way he plays 
it's magnetic. There, there's there's a a a fabric that you can build through because of the way that he loves sharing the basketball. And it's it's interesting. You bring up the asshole comment from a couple years ago. I, I'm watching the first half, and I'm like, no, Ty- Tyrese has got to like actually be aggressive to score here, and he goes. Th- that's my one knock is like he'll go through phases of the game because of his natural like uh his natural desire to involve everybody that he just like is off the ball. He's off the ball. He's getting off the ball. And like it works sometimes. And in that first half it didn't work and then he comes out in the third quarter and he's uber aggressive to score. And I'd like to see more of that even though their offense is great. And even though he's averaging 12 assists, I at times would like to see more of that, like a more, a better feel at times for, okay, you know what? I got to go get a bucket. And he had that in the third quarter props to him. Yeah. Again, 27 a game, but I want to talk about the defense because I I mentioned carnival basketball and real basketball. And look, this does, this team does not have great defensive personnel and they leaned all the way the other way when they decided we're just going to start buddy healed because we love the chemistry with Halliburton yep. and Heald and the way they use Heald as a screener and a ghost screener it just it's just totally warps defenses over and over but I agree with you like aside from a portion of the second quarter when Drew Holiday was posting up their smaller guards and like I don't know what it is about the Pacers they have absolutely no idea how to double team and rotate out of a double team like once they double it's like just five guys running in random directions it's like oh we left Sam Hauser wide open for a corner three at one point they doubled and then they left the guy they were doubling, I think, I no, they left Horford somehow wide open under the rim. Like, everyone ran away from him, and the Celtics just didn't see him. Other than that, I thought their screen navigation effort was much better. Their closeouts, you mentioned, were much better. And just, like, there was a possession in the fourth quarter where Tatum had Miles Turner on him. And the Celtics, they, they monkey around with these matchups on defense in ways that, like, you saw Cornette guarding McConnell and yep, Matherin yep, last night. Yep. And part of the reason they do that is, A, up your offense to like take you out of rhythm like you want to attack this matchup and get away from what you do go ahead they I can tell you this they love when teams scrap their entire offense to go at Sam Hauser the Celtics love that you want to go attack Sam Hauser go ahead and do it like we don't care but one of the benefits of that is sometimes those matchups carry over to the other end so Tatum's got Miles Turner on him he's dancing he's 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 lining up to drive Aaron Neesmith is on the opposite wing the left wing Tatum's on the right wing and he calls out to Bruce Brown, who's in the dunker spot on the same side of the floor as him, said, hey, let's swap places so I can be the low man. I want to be the low man because I think a drive is coming and I'm a better shot blocker than you. They swap places and Aaron Neesmith, who has been fantastic defensively, ends up swatting Tatum at the rim and they score on a fast break. The crowd's going crazy. That's the kind of stuff like that focus and attention to detail was really there last night. Neesmith is shooting 46% from three. Longtime listeners know I have been foraging for berries and seafood on Aaron Neesmith Island for like three years. And we're now we got visitors. We got we got an airport. People are flying in. It's been great. I thought Obi Toppin played his best defensive game of the season last night. Uh, maybe damning with fame praise, but he was good. They're using him at center more with Jalen Smith injured. That, that's been interesting. Matherin is capable of it when he really focuses, and I thought last night he was good. Like They don't have to be this bad, and they can't be this bad, 28th bad, if they really want to win a round in the playoffs. 
And I thought last night showed me like big atmosphere, big game, the whole basketball world watching, no other games going on. They're treating it like a playoff game. And they played it like they're going to have to play a playoff game. I thought they yet they got lucky with Boston missing shots. Fine. Their effort and attention to detail was just better. And man, the, the reaction of the bench and the coaches when those like when those last few baskets have it was it was awesome. Like they're in the semifinals. It, they're in the semifinals if they're going to Vegas. I loved the reaction after the Neesmith dunk at the end. Um, it that I think you 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 nailed it. Like it, it felt like a playoff game for much of the game, and certainly in that second half, it felt like a playoff game. I'll go one step further on their defense, Zach. I I, I don't think they'll be a playoff team unless their defense improves. Okay, fair. I, I, much less win a win around. Um. And, and the they, reason, they might, the, they the might reason, prove you wrong if they their may. offense is this much better than everybody else. They may. They may. But let's assume they're not going to have perfect health for a season. Let's assume Halliburton's going to miss a few games, right? I, I, I just don't think they're, what I mean by this, their, their margin of error with their offense and having this bad of a defense, it's not that big. So you go through a stretch where you have, uh, three or four games where you shoot 32% from three and you you maybe have a, a high turnover game. All of a sudden, the East is going to be jammed, man. The East is going to be jammed. And all of a sudden, you're looking at being on the road maybe for a playing game. Like, I I, I just, I, they've got to improve. And, and to your point, last night showed me they can at least be average or slightly below average defensively. They don't have to be this bad. Do you have any takeaways from Boston's perspective? Um, kind of a clunky game for them in stretches. Uh, they were they, they were my pick to win the championship. They're still my pick to win the championship. Obviously, they're a different team with Porzingis on the floor, and they're one guy fewer, one guy thinner um, with Porzingis out. Uh, it feels like every Boston loss is like somehow alarming. It, it may be because they're so good and their expectations are so high. That every time they lose, it seems to be like, oh my God, what's we got to talk about? What's wrong with like I went on, on NBA today, today in like four hours, and one of the topics is, was this an alarming loss for Boston? Literally, that's the topic. What's your just general temperature take on Boston? What is their vulnerability? What's your what's your what do you watch for when you watch the Celtics? Oh, that's a good question. What do I watch for? Um, I I like. Let me tell you what I like so far. Uh, Missoula talked about uh, really using the post-up, specifically with Jalen Brown and Tatum and Porzingis. Uh, Drew Holiday, to an extent, has done that as well. They've had a lot of success. I don't have the points per possession on post-ups uh, right in front of me. Uh, I checked it a, maybe a week ago. A lot of success on post-ups. And they're doing it at a fairly high volume. Uh, I know uh, previous game I had called, they were number one in the NBA in terms of frequency, in terms of post-ups, and a, and a really high points per possession. So they're they're getting success out of that. I like that. I, what I don't like, because that that is a form of matchup hunting. What I don't like is the matchup hunting where it ends with a contested three-point shot. And we saw some of that last night. And it's not to say Jason Tatum and Jalen Brown can't make those shots. I think Boston's at their best when they're moving the ball on their moving bodies. 
and then the matchup hunting happens when Porzingis gets a small on him and he does his low Brook Lopez rip through and either scores at the rim or gets to the free throw line. Or Tatum has a Ty- Tyrese Halliburton him on the left wing and he can make a play out of that. That to me is their best form of matchup hunting right now. I don't like when they go late game and it ends every possession for four straight minutes ends in a contested jumper. I don't like that. And everybody's standing around watching. And there's been some of that this year, but I think they overall, they've been better. To me, they're the best team in the NBA, at least on paper, at least what I've seen so far. And I I think a couple of the things that we were worried about with them, uh, the, the, the third big, the, the bench rotation, like Hauser's been awesome. Hauser's good. Hauser's just good. Oh yeah. Yeah. Pritchard. I'm, I'm, I love Peyton Pritchard. And I know he got up to a really slow start. He's a good basketball player. He's feisty. He's competitive. Like he gives you something. Uh, a little change of pace. You know, he's got the he's got the in him. Like I, I like him. Cornette's been really good. Like he can't shoot anymore. He came into the league as a stretch five. He can't shoot anymore. But he's been overall. He's been fine. So I, to me, the worries are they revert to bad habits in terms of the late game stuff. And and of course, like with any team, it's the health. But their their top five, oh my god! Like I, I think Denver has like the perfect starting five. I've I've said that all season, uh, and and said it a couple times over the summer after the finals. They have the perfect starting five. The pieces all just fit. They complement each other. Like they they've all gotten over their egos. Like it's just it just works, right? Boston starting five potentially is better. And to me, I, I say this all the time. I'll repeat it for your listeners. Derek White is a bad dude. Like, he is a bad mother. And I'm so glad that over the past six to nine months, like, the rest of the NBA world has figured that out. To me, he's like the perfect fourth or fifth starter on a championship team. He's the perfect guy. And he's the perfect guy for this team. Every shot you take against Derek White and Drew Holiday, less less so this year for Drew Holiday, because I'm talking about shots that guards take, and Drew Holiday's guarding, like, every single position on the floor. Every shot you take is like you got to put it an inch higher, or you got to release it like a, a a couple inches to the right or to the left because Derek White's just is, there were, there, were just a couple, there. there were a couple in the first half when he was guarding Halliburton, where he's like adjusting his shot angle even in the paint, and they're he's shooting air balls. He's he's just he they have the best defensive backcourt in the league. It's not even close. Derek White is everybody talks about Drew Holiday. Derek White is that good. He's that good defensively. I believe I had him first team all defense last year. If I didn't, I, I should have. But I mean, look, I've said this before. The the stat I look at every day is percentage of Boston shots that come at the rim. Because that's that's my they're gonna be a jump shooting team. They are a great jump shooting team. When they tick that percentage up, just like three or four extra shots a game, just exchange a couple of those jumpers. And I think Tatum has been committed to like, I'm gonna burrow to the rim when I have a small guy on me. He's been good yes. about that. I think Jalen Brown has been most there. There's a little bit of like mini Celtics panic today because he's had back to back zero assist games. I think he's been fine since that Charlotte game where he was a little out of whack and they lost in Charlotte. And he knows like his best offense is in transition because he's often being guarded by opposing fours and they just can't stick with him in the open floor. Um, but when they get to the rim a little bit more and just like I keep saying this, but the default doesn't have to be kicking out 
Like sometimes just go up, draw contact. Tatum had one last night where he missed. There was an offensive rebound. He missed that, but he got fouled. Like just a little bit more of that. And if they're healthy, I feel like they are the best team in the East. Denver, to your point, I mean, the basketball gods could not craft a better starting five in terms of just how the pieces fit than that. It's it's just a wealth of of uh, of talent and that all fits together. Any other Celtics takeaways from? I mean, twelve free throws. That's low for them. I. I I mean, Indiana is is actually kind of a high foul team. That that's kind of anomalous. Um, they're twenty eighth in opponent free throw rate. Any other Boston takeaways? Anything that you saw that was like, oh, that's a bad. Again, every every time they lose, it's just like this New England panic sets in that I really enjoy. But anything else you took away? No, I mean, look, I, I I get the the New England panic setting in um, in the same way that I understood and understand the the Philly panic setting in. Although the, the Eagles fans I've talked to since the 49ers game, they've been <laughs> relatively mild-mannered about uh, that drubbing that came on Sunday. Um, your point about the default kicking to three, I, I that sometimes is a concern. There was a specific play last night where Al Horford got run off on the right wing and I can't remember who was in the right corner, but he had a clear path to the basket. And the guy who was guarding in the right corner gave like the bull help. And Al still had the lane. And I know Al's old, maybe doesn't want contact at the rim, but he just defaulted to the kick and they get a contested three and they missed. Um, Tatum, to your point, if the emphasis for him is just like, I'm going to go to the basket, and there's nothing you can do about it. In the same, like, I, I hate to make this comparison, but I get shades of this some games. There's games where LeBron says, man, my, my jumper's off. I've got to force the issue here. And it works. Tatum's, Tatum's doing that. He's doing that at times. I understand. I just looked this up the other day because I don't know why. You just mentioned Horford being old, not wanting contact. And I understand Horford is now a jump shooting big, has been for yeah. a long time. How many free throws do you think Al Horford has shot this season in 18 games? I, you're setting me up here. I'm going to go with a low number. I'm going to guess nine. Seven. Seven. <laughs> Al Horford, and he's seven for seven. He's shooting 100% from the foul line. He leads the league in free throw percentage. Probably doesn't qualify for the league leaderboard. Uh, he has not shot over 100 free throws in a season since 2018. Do you think, like, do, I got a question for you. This is actually a question, something to think about. Because I, I see this on some players where like, ah, oh, he's played 196 minutes and he's taken two free throws or whatever. I, I think some of this is the strategic influence of attacking closeouts, kicking out, attacking closeouts, kicking out. Like Quentin Grimes comes, comes to mind with the Knicks where it's like he has now been programmed I think players have been programmed now, and I don't like it. We're like, you do have a clear, put some pressure on the rim, make them foul you. And I think the default for players in general, I don't think this is just a Boston issue or an Al Horford issue. I think the, I, I say this all the time, you're, you're, you've got 24 seconds to create a good shot. We have basically told, and coaches do tell players this, you're one of the guys that's not allowed to take a mid-range shot, right? 
So now you get run off a closeout with seven seconds to go in the half court and you drive and there's somebody in the vicinity of the rim and it's like in your brain now, I've got a kick. Well, I think a better play, it was seven seconds on the clock, honestly, is a pull-up 17-footer, but nobody wants to shoot those anymore unless you're Kevin Durant or Devin Booker, Jalen Brown or Jason Tatum. There's like 10 guys now that shoot those shots in the whole league when they get run off a closeout and then they're just kicking. What often happens? A contested three-hour shot clock violation. Put some pressure on the rim or shoot the shoot the pull-up. Get free throws. Get I hate throws. it. I hate it. So so here's the thing with the with the shot quality stuff. Like a lot of the analytics people today will be like, well, it's 12 or 41 from three. It's just bad luck. Just bad luck. Well, here's the thing. Like, true, fair. Like, bad luck. Okay. Um, threes are just a higher variance shot than shots at the basket and free throws. So it's cool in game number 21 of the regular season to be like, bad luck. Man, just next time shots will go in. You have two bad luck games in the first three games of the conference finals. Like you don't have the next 50 for the luck to even out just, and, and you can win a bad luck game. If five of those missed threes become 10 free throws or eight free throws and you go seven to eight from the line, like that, that's all I'm saying. Boston has no structural issues of, of, of any kind. Just, just give me a little more, just get a little grimier. We've got a Boston Celtic guy on the pod this week. I can't spoil the surprise. Uh, we'll probably announce it tomorrow. Okay. It's something I talked to him about. And specifically, like, well, you can figure it out now, but specifically, like, when to pop, when to roll. And are there certain plays that you guys are running when you're supposed to roll versus are there certain plays when you're supposed to pop? And his thing was, like, it's all feel thing. Like, I've been in the league long enough. It's all feel. But, like, to me, structurally with them, if Porzingis is rolling more and creating some threat at the rim, they're a better team. And I feel like he has been doing that. No, 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 no. And he has. In the same way that I think that's what Rob Williams gave them. You can't just like completely go away from that and just rely on Tatum and Brown to put pressure on the rim one-on-one. You need that that vertical lob threat. You need the, the size down low. As you were talking about this, like with the, the variance, I think this is a big reason Denver was so dominant last year. They overcame a lot of bad shooting nights because they are constantly in the paint. They're putting pressure and the, they're scoring at the rim. They are scoring at the rim. So they can have a seven for 24 three-point shooting night against the Miami Heat and win. I don't know that, that that was the exact number, but I know it was something like that in one of the games they won in the finals. All right, let's go to the second game because this will give us an excuse to talk about the Kings who are on your small list of confusing teams. And I'm a little confused by them too. We're all wrong in this business quite a bit. So I'm taking my victory lap today when I was the only one on NBA Today last week that predicted the Pelicans would go into Sacramento and win and get to the semifinals. I even called the Pelicans a sleeping giant in the NBA. Now, giant is maybe a little bit just TV hyperbole. I know you talked about the Pelicans earlier this week on your show with Steve Jones and Nikias Duncan. Um, I thought that was an awesome win last night in Sacramento. Um, they look 
they look whole to me now with CJ back and Trey Murphy the third back. Just the injection of shooting and wings and ball handling is massive for them. They played Zion at center quite a bit last night, which is a look they haven't used much. And now part of that is that Larry Nance is injured, but they have the wing. I mean, Jordan Hawkins didn't even play. They have the wing depth to do that. And I just watched them. The Ingram Zion fit is always going to be a little strange and a little clunky. They don't necessarily directly complement each other a lot, but there's a little bit of a flow and a hierarchy developing there that just makes a little bit more sense. Part of it is, I mean, CJ just got back, but he's clearly going to be a secondary option for them now, which I think is good. Like stick him around whatever Ingram and Zion are doing, kick him the ball. And all of a sudden it's like, whoa, that's CJ McCollum attacking a closeout. That's awesome. When those guys rest, you get to cook on the pick and roll. There were a couple like Ingram. There was an Ingram Zion. I'm sorry, an Ingram JV pick and roll last night. Kick to Zion on the wing. No one's guarding Zion. That's fine. That's that's part of the deal. Zion immediately transitions into a Zion Valanciunas pick and roll. Kick to Ingram for a three that missed, but it was a good look. Their offense is just starting to make sense for me. This is they they played a lineup last night. CJ Murphy, Herb Jones, who's going to make the All Defense team this year. I think. I mean, he's going to have an incredible. Case. He's guarding De'Aaron Fox one night and like a center the other the next night. Ingram. And Zion, it's an awesome lineup. Like this team is, if they can just stay healthy for like a hot second and develop a rhythm and a flow, we're getting, Zion is running pick and rolls, highest volume of his career, which makes a lot of sense. Fewer posts, more pick and rolls. I don't know, man. This is like Stan Van Gundy said it on the, on the broadcast last night. Um, If they, if they can just stay healthy no one is going to want to play them in the playoffs. Like I, I don't know really what their upside is because I don't know how good they can be defensively. But this team's got a lot. It's got a lot of talent, and I, I think people when they were nine and eight last week, and I was doing, I, I had Doris on, and I said, pick one team in each conference that you're just paying. Like they're in the middle of the standings, but you're paying attention, either good or bad. Pelicans was the easy pick in the West for me because. I thought they had done really good work to be at nine and eight or eight and seven, whatever they were at the time, given their injuries. I, I, what is this team? Are you as optimistic? I don't really even know what I'm saying. Like, I don't think they're going to be in the conference finals or anything, but like, if they were, I wouldn't be completely blown away by it. I have held on to all of my Pelican stock for the last two seasons. Keep in mind prior to Zion getting hurt, believe they were second in the West behind Memphis at 23 and 12 or 23 and 13 when he got hurt in that Philly game in early January. They were number one in the West about 28 games into the season, I think at 19 and nine um, last year. Health is the concern for sure. When I think about their team fully whole, and this includes Larry Nance, the at least the idea of Larry Nance being a switchable big, I think they have one of the most complete rosters in the NBA. They have enough shooting. They have enough shot creation. Uh, Brandon Ingram, to me, you know, from year four on, just keeps getting better as a passer. Uh, there's a couple guys on uh, Pelicans Twitter that I follow that post the uh, potential assist numbers every game for these guys. And B.I.D., Potential assists, you know, consistently over the last two, three weeks has been 10 or more every night. Like he's, to me, uh, uh, Zion 
is like give him the ball and let him go. B.I. is is more of the thoughtful guy. Like how how can I create a good shot for our team? That's the best version of B.I. I'm not saying he does it all the time. He also played but, last night a very muscly game for him. Like yeah. he was going up for <laughs> offensive rebounds, kind of like going through contact at times. I like this. Like he was mean. I was like, I I want more of this meanness. They they to me are a sleeping giant in the West. And you talked you said can they have a they were six sixth in defense last year? They were sixth yeah, in defense. I don't really know how that happened. It's like them in the Bulls were fifth that's and sixth. Yeah. Yeah. Herb Jones. Herb Jones and Alex Caruso. That's how it happens. I, I, those guys are as impactful as any defenders in the league to me. Uh, there was a uh, play last night where Herb Jones cut off his own man on a drive, who then flipped to someone else, got driven by, switched, cut off that drive, recovered for a three, flew by him, then blocked the three from behind. How There's five or six possessions. Zach, when you watch the Pelicans play, there's five or six possessions every single game that are like that. He is so disruptive, and he, he's a wrecking. I called him a menace yesterday. He's a wrecking ball and a menace defensively. You know what else he is? And he doesn't, he, Jack. He doesn't do just one thing either. He he's a help side defender. He's a non ball defender. He's a rotation guy. He's a charge guy. He's a verticality guy at the rim. Like he does everything defensively. You know what else he's doing? He's shooting thirty six percent on threes. He is a menace in transition on offense. And maybe my favorite thing about him, and this is a weird team that's going to be working in the mid-range and it's going to get mucky. He's a really smart connector kind of passer. He can catch the ball 18 feet from the rim, facing a sideline and like mid-air pivot because he knows where the open guy is. He's he's just, they got a lot. So, all right, you're on, you're, you are, you are all in on Pelican Here, sleeping giant. Here's, here's where I'm at with them. If you you brought up like Western Conference Finals, here's where I'm at with them when we talk about them in the playoffs. Zion defensively getting targeted. How much can he hold up there? His health in general, but how much can he hold up there? Because look, there there's there's a player two every couple games where you're like, what? Well, when he was at center last night, they even took him off Savonis and put him yeah. on like Harrison Barnes and had Najee Marshall or, spoiler alert, Herb Jones guard Savonis. <laughs> just be like, we we can't, big fellow, yeah. we cannot have you in the screening action because you're bl- when he blitzes, it's like Three Stooges level comedy. I don't know where he's going or like what's happening to his feet, but all of a sudden he's at like half court and then he doesn't recover. He's so, so the recovery, slow. That's the that's that's what I was going to get to. Is the rec- it's like the second effort with him at times. Is is memeable. It's memeable. It really is. And and so I, that's I'm concerned about that. You get you get a team who's just going to target him over and over again. I'm concerned about that. You you mentioned the word hierarchy. It's something we talked about a bunch on the podcast yesterday with Nikias and Steve. That to me was the biggest issue. Uh, even even going back to last year is like the hierarchy with CJ Bi Zion. On top of that, I'm. I'm very bullish on Trey Murphy. Does he all of a sudden move into that third tier in the higher? I, I think Trey is potentially that good as a, I said, as a, I said last as a week, score and a two-way player. They're going to have to start Trey Murphy eventually because he's ju- he's just too good. He's he's yeah. too good to come off the bench. It does too many things that they need around their best players. So so the so the so the hierarchy issue that has to get sorted out by the playoffs. Uh, I, I think defensively. I, I, 
between Herb Jones and Dyson Daniels, like not really that concerned with the perimeter defense. It's more just the targeting. It's more you get into a series and and like you got to play Valanchunas a bunch and he's getting, you know, he's given up a bunch of like, let's say it's Phoenix. Valanchunas, what's his value in that series if if he's playing drop coverage against Kevin Durant and Devin Booker, right? How it, he's been great, by the way. Valanchunas has been great. He's been, he's been, he's been really good. <laughs> great. I'm just saying playoff wise. So then all of a sudden it's like, how much can Larry Nance play in a playoff series and switch and and you can have a functioning defense? Like, but they have that option in theory, if they're whole and healthy. So yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm bullish on it, but there's, there's those concerns. Let's talk about the Kings because, you know, I, I said to you, pick a couple of teams where you're like, all right, we're 20 games in. I kind of don't know what to make of you. Um, you hinted the Kings are on that list. Um, they're 11 and eight. They are something much better than that with De'Aaron Fox in the lineup. They are uh, plus 45 for the season with Fox on the floor and minus 59 when he's off the floor. He's averaging 30 a game on 48% shooting. Not an exaggeration last night on the broadcast for Brian Anderson and Stan Van Gundy to say he belongs in the MVP ballot conversation. We need to distinguish the MVP conversation from the ballot conversation. De'Aaron Fox is in the ballot conversation, which is a great place to be. Uh, and and just a huge achievement for him. And I'm not being sarcastic. He's an amazing player. Um, that said, they've kind of wobbled a bit of late, even with Fox. Uh, 11 and 8, their point differential for the season is now minus 14. And with Fox and Sabonis on the floor together, they are only, and I, I don't even put it in quotation marks, only plus 12 in 362 minutes. So they're not... Their best lineups are not like blowing the doors off people. Um, they feel like I, I want to see their whole team a little bit more and see if like Keegan Murray can stay healthy. He just came back from a back injury, left the game last night, came back in. Fox is back and and you know they're they're starting to get their rotation more or less settled game to game. I want to see where those numbers are in ten games, but they aren't quite where I thought they were. And defensively, they are down to twentieth. That was the big emphasis for them. And JJ, I don't know what you make of this. For the second straight season, they are allowing exactly the kind of shot diet you're quote-unquote supposed to allow in the NBA. They allow the six fewest threes and the third fewest shots at the rim. And teams are just torching them from every single spot on the floor. This season, they are 26 in opponent field goal percentage at the rim. That's a Sabonis thing. That ain't changing. 25th on opponent shooting percentage from three, 27th on opponent shooting percentage from mid-range. So opponents are on fire from everywhere. Last season, 26 at the rim, 26 from three, 24th from mid-range. If this is just bad jump shooting luck, it's now persisting for a long enough time that you have to ask yourself, is there something about our collective size? Like it's kind of a small team and our collective closeout athleticism, I don't know what the right term is, that's torpedoing our defense. But if this team is around even in point differential in a month, they become a very, very interesting trade deadline team because they have a lot of picks to trade. They have a lot of mid-sized contracts. Um, where are you on the Kings? Yeah, they're they're one of my sort of incomplete teams. Um, and I don't I don't know really what to to make of it. Um, I go back to last season. They had uh, 
uh, there's different ways to say this, but essentially the the healthiest roster uh, last year. Their starting five played the most minutes of any five-man unit, the most games together. Um, and, and look, I think in specifically with last year, as many injuries as there were in the West, they benefited from that. And that's not to take away from their season at all. That's not to take away from the all-NBA campaigns of De'Aaron Fox and DeMontis Sabonis. Not at all. It's just a point to make. You get into this season, and Herder can't make a jump shot to start the year. De'Aaron Fox gets injured. Then he comes back. They win some. They win a few games in a row. He's playing at an all-world MVP-like level. I'll say it. MVP-like level. Herter gets on fire. But the defensive issues are still there. And I think it's a function not of schemes. I think it's a function of roster. This is who they are. So if they're going to have, a, right now it's an average offense. Now you have to sort of, uh, extrapolate that over Darren Fox's availability, whatever. I, I don't have the number in front of me, but they're an average offense right they're, now. They're 13th in offense. I 13th would in bet, offense. I I, they're probably they're, eighth or ninth when Darren Fox. I was, was, was going to say eighth. I, I bet they're yeah, eighth yeah, yeah. in like a month. I know what his his the, his offense. I could look it up real quick, but his offensive rating is around 117.6. Let's call it. So they're somewhere in the top five to seven of offense, right? So when he's on the floor, so they're going to be great offensively. I have no doubt. Uh, in a playoff series, you go back to the conversation about the Pelicans. You go back to the conversation we just had about Boston. In a playoff series, how much lineup versatility do you have in terms of your schemes defensively? And what we saw last year, and what we saw even the other night in that uh in that last group play game against the Warriors, is like we're going to be super physical and hope the refs don't call a bunch of fouls on us because. You're right. They don't have a ton of size positionally. And you've got Sabonis as the anchor of your your defense. So in the playoffs, you can get away with more of that. You know, I I think there's also an element, Zach, going back to the summer where they have this cap space. They have an opportunity to potentially go and get a free agent. And look, I don't know. I, I didn't I didn't sort of make any proclamations at the time about they they should go use that 27 million for this guy. And they didn't. They signed Sabonis to his extension. They signed Harrison Barnes to his extension. They they ran it back essentially. They got uh, Duarte from from Indiana as like the one one sort of guy, right? And it's like, all right, you're 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 banking on the core continuity, but there were still the inherent roster issues. There's no doubt in my mind they're going to be a playoff team. Like they're 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 too talented, and Sabonis and Fox in particular are too good, but. I, I I guess in some ways the incomplete is also like a, a disappointed to some degree because I was hoping that core co- continuity would propel them early on. And and granted, there's a caveat. You can't dismiss Herter's woes shooting the basketball early in the season, and you can't dismiss Fox being out of the lineup. I um Grant Williams was a name I liked for them in free agency, just younger, better defensively, good spot up shooter. But they they chose to go this way, which is fine. Um, it's interesting you mentioned the d- defense in the playoffs and the physicality because one of the reasons I was optimistic about the Kings last year was they really showed 
me and everyone something in that Warriors series, even though they lost it. And one of the things they showed was their defense was good in that series. It was good statistically, yeah. and it was good by the eye test. And that is not an easy team to play good defense against. They were up for it. They were intense. They were focused. They did not make a ton of mistakes on all the off-ball movement and screening that the Warriors just kill you with. They were good, and they were tough. And I just... that. A young they team, the, Zach. They lost the series because of Steph Curry's brilliance. Like well, that, you, that's why they lost the series. He had I've, two I've said unbelievable this, games, and I've said this too. I think they win the series if Fox doesn't break the tip of his index finger halfway through it. I think they probably win the series, and that win in Golden State in Game Six, backs against the wall, is one of the most impressive wins I've ever seen a young team get in its first in its first playoff go around in that building against that team. That is one hell of a win. Um, so that was, one you, so, so I want to, want to kind of kind of follow up the point that I made and kind of ask you the same thing. Like there's when, when we talk about players and, and some players, we'd certainly take for granted in this regard when they've done it over an extended period of time, they, they're just it's like sustained excellence. We, we sort of take it for granted. Like, let's not take for granted what Giannis is doing this year. Like he's been awesome the last month. Like he's been awesome. But I, I think when we talk about players and we talk about teams, like we're always looking for some level of growth, some level of improvement in the weaknesses. And, and I think when we get disappointed, it's not that we're disappointed in like, oh, this guy's not as good as I thought. No, it's like it feels stagnant. It feels a little stagnant. And it feels like we didn't necessarily address the issues from last year. I think that's where I'm at with the Kings. It's well, not to say that I don't think they can be a great team. It's not to say in the same way that I, I said about Denver or they said about Indy, if you have an elite offense, and eventually I think the Kings will be a top seven or eight offense, you still got to be a little better defensively. You still have to be a little bit better protecting the rim. Again, you think about matchups, Lakers in the playoffs, uh, Denver in the playoffs. It's like, these teams are going to be at the rim over and over and over again. And one of the reasons I think the Warriors were not, even though they lost the series, not a bad matchup for them is the Warriors are not a team that mismatch hunts smaller players. And the Kings, they, they, when they play Fox, Herder, and Monk together, that's a small trio at from one to three. But it's an incredibly potent offensive trio. I wouldn't, I'm not going stagnant just because... This team was stagnant for 16 years. This is the happiest okay, kind fair. of stagnancy that's yeah, that's, that's that fair. there's ever that's been. Um, I I will. They also just got Trey Lyles back. He's an important part of their team, and they're playing him at center some with Vizenkov next to him. That that's interesting to me. I just again, I'm very interested to see how hungry they are. To you know, the Athletic has reported that they're going to be aggressive in trades for any big name that becomes available. I, from what I've heard, I, I think that was maybe a little, I, I actually, I don't know. I don't know. I just, I don't know that they're going to be that, that aggressive. Like I, they don't strike me as a Zach Levine team from what I've heard. I, I'm not sure to be clear. I'm not sure. I think if they're going to make a big trade, they would like to make a trade for someone who's going to help their defense. And that's not Zach Levine. I don't know who that is. We'll see where the Raptors are in a month or so. But the other thing that Kings have to be, cognizant about is they have two gigantic salaries on their team in Fox and Sabonis. The third gigantic salary in the world of the second apron is the pivot point at which you're starting to really kind of limit the next set of moves you can make. And I think the Kings are going to be very cognizant about 
can we add and whether look I mentioned the Raptors guys and Anobi and Siakam are going to be under big new contracts next year how big I don't know but I just think the Kings are interesting can I give you a, a confusing yeah, I, do, I want to say I want to say one thing real quick because I yes in no. fairness I, I understand the pushback on the stagnant point and I and I I, I agree with you that that you know we should acknowledge how great of a story this is and how good of a basketball team they are. I think it, I've always, and RJ and I talked about this a few weeks ago on my podcast, when we talk about like sample sizes, right? We talk about probably 20 to 25 games as like a sample size where you can make a proclamation on how a player's playing or a team or whatever. And and so the, the reality is they're 11 and 8. They've got a negative point differential for the season. There's the context of of Herder's shooting woes to start. There's the context of Darren Fox, Trey Lyles, you just mentioned. Uh, that's why I give them an incomplete. Like they're 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 an incomplete to me right now. I don't know what to fully make of them, and and, and that's more my point than to say like, yeah. oh, this team has stalled out. I don't think this team has stalled out. My my big picture view was two weeks ago when they were really rolling with Fox. I was like, all right, my King's optimism was like on point. This is going to be the team I thought they were going to be, and now it's like, okay, they're just kind of not you know hit or miss a little bit. Isn't it amazing though? In like in like uh. In the in the context of a 20, 20 game sample size, right? Two or three games matter a lot. In the context of an eighty two game season, two or three games don't really matter all that much. So we're gonna have we we could have a completely different take at game forty or game sixty on this team. Twenty games in, there are a couple teams in my confusing bucket, and they their names rhyme. One is in the east and one is in the west. I want you to talk to me about the Mavs. Mavs and Cavs. Mavs and Cavs. Cavs, I'm like, all right, can, when, are you guys going to start rolling anytime soon when you get your guy, you got your, all your guys back? Like, is this going to look good for like more than a quarter at a time? Because right now it's like, okay, we squeaked one out in Detroit. Um, but I want to talk about Dallas because, you know, look, they don't even have a lineup that's played 100 minutes yet to give you a window into their sort of lack of continuity and their rotation jumble. Everyone's been hurt here or there. They played that crazy game against the Thunder where they had a 30-0 run and lost with like half their team injured. Um, they are 11-8. and I believe they started 6-0 and or 6-1, and so they, they are sub-500 since then. Seventh in offense, 25th in defense. So there's that sort of, sort of uh, bifurcation again. Plus four total point differential. Plus 17, so eh, in 300-some minutes with Kyrie and Luka together. You know, they're starting this lineup that I didn't expect them to start with Derrick Jones Jr., who shot 42% on a whole ton of threes compared to his career average, so kudos to him. They need him to guard point guards. That's what he's been doing a lot, guarding lead ball handlers. I kind of thought they'd start Josh Green as the fifth guy with Kyrie, Luka, Grant Williams, and Derek Lively, who's been fantastic for a rookie. I just look at this team and I'm like, I don't know. I don't. I mean, I thought I thought they were like a 44 ish win team to start the season. Then they start like like somewhere between fifth and eleventh in the West. Mm -hmm. Then they start six and zero. I'm like, all right, Lively looks like a stud. Like they're kind of rolling. The fit with Kyrie and Luca looks pretty good. Maybe I underestimated them. Maybe they're a 48 to 52 win team. Now I'm back to like I. I don't. I don't know. I mean, Luca's been unbelievable. Obviously, Kyrie's been great for the most part. He's had some bad shooting games lately. Just seems like. I guess it seems to me like a team that hasn't nailed down quite yet. Like, who should our starting five be? Who should play with who? 
what should our rotation actually part of that is that Kleba's missed almost the entire season and is theoretically a big part of their team and unlocks a lot of interesting big man combinations but I just they're a strange team what do you what is this team yeah go back to the first game of this season that I called which was Wemby's debut uh Dallas uh was there interviewing Jay Kidd before the game and you know I asked him a little bit about the defense the addition of Grant Williams uh and he he said something that I thought was really interesting he said we're very comfortable playing in the 120s 125 range like we're we're cool with that I I don't know that that's a, like a sustainable way to 55 wins <laughs> but the 44 win mark in fifth to seventh in the West, that still feels very plausible and, and a big reason why. And you and I actually, when I had you on the pod, we spent some time on the Mavs and you know, my, my two big things defensively for them were, were point of attack, you know, that just not having a great point of attack defender um, and, and then rim protection, which they were awful there last year. Go back to the playoffs against the Warriors. Awful there. Derek Lively's been their 29th in field goal percentage allowed at the rim this year, despite yeah. Lively being good. Despite Lively being good. And so I, I think the, the defensive question marks are still there. I, I'm probably higher on this team than I was when I had you on my podcast a month or so ago for our season preview. I'm higher on them. Um, but I don't, I don't look at them as an upper tier Western conference team. And a lot of that just has to, it's, it's, it can be simplified to just like, I don't, I don't buy their defense. I don't buy them being in that 15 to 20 range defensively where, you know, they're going to have like the OKC game the other night, like I'm watching that game and they're down, down one eleven to 87. They go on this massive run and you, you they get up six and it's like oh yeah they they can't stop anybody <laughs> i forgot that okc was literally just missing shots randomly for seven straight minutes they can't stop anybody they can't stop anybody shout out to my friend mark follower who's the play-by-play guy for the Mavs, who just had the perfect tenor for that run to call that run as it went on peaking with I don't remember exactly when it was. It might have been when they tied it up where he just gave up and was like, what is even happening right now? And there was just a perfect like exclamation for that game. I guess to me it comes down to the same issue we talked about before the season, which is who's the third best player on the team? And a lot of people would have said Grant Williams before the season. He's been fine. He's done his job. Some people within the Mavericks would have said maybe not our third best, but our third most important player might end up being Maxi Kleba. He hasn't played. Tim Hardaway Jr. has been great off the bench. It's like Dante Exum comes in sometimes and does stuff and sometimes doesn't. Seth Curry sometimes comes in and does stuff and sometimes doesn't play at all. Derek Jones Jr. is starting okay. Josh Green has been like wildly up and down and sometimes invisible and I think overall kind of disappointing other than he had a little sort of five-game surge before missing some time recently. It just feels a little less certain than I thought it was going to be just in terms of how it looks and feels night to night, but they are 11 and eight. And like I said, when they were six and zero or whatever, like, yeah, they beat a bunch of bad teams to pile up that record. They couldn't beat bad teams last year. Beating bad teams yeah. is like part of the game part in of the, the game. NBA. Yeah. Um, they are again, like they just, 
They also never get to the rim, which is a constant Mavs problem. They're 29th in shots at the rim. I'd like to see that go this higher. Is, I don't this, know how. Zach, Zach, this is not, this is not a, a shot at anyone. And, and, and I mean this. This is not a shot at anyone. Kyrie, of course, missed that OKC game. One of the things that, like, a thought that came across my brain while I'm watching that game, Dallas started that game, Grant Williams, Derek Jones Jr., rookie Derek Lively, Seth Curry, Luca. They're coming off the bench. Like, who, who is Lawson was their bench, best bench player that game, right? Well, that's injuries, right? That's hard. Yeah, no, no, that's what I'm saying. That's injuries. But, like, so you're missing. Kyrie, very important piece, obviously, and, and and Kleba. But your point about who is their third best player is important because when we are talking about elite teams, Denver, Boston, I'm going to throw Phoenix in there at some point today. When we're talking about elite teams, like you start looking at all right, how, what lineups can we play? How can we mess around with matchups? I, I just don't think Dallas has that. There, there's there's inherent roster issues. As good as they are at the top, as good as they are at the top, there's inherent roster issues. Yeah, I'm sitting there monk- toying around like, can they play Williams, Kleba, and Derek Jones Jr. together? Like three switchable bigs with Luka and Kyrie. I'm like, that seems like a, maybe. I don't know. Like, I just don't, I don't know. You, know my, you mentioned A.J. Lawson. It's a dumb thing. My favorite moment of that whole game was he either made a three or got a stop. I can't remember. There was like a dead ball afterwards. And Luca came up to him and gave him like a giant high five and like yelled something encouraging at at him. This is an undrafted guy, bit player, wouldn't normally be even be playing. And I loved it because normally, and he's earned it, all the attention on Luca in terms of his body language and his interactions is about his whining to the referees, which is incessant. I like if you can bottle that kind of positive spirit and lift up your teammates like that, I love, I love that. It was like a little moment that I really, really was like, that's what I want to see from Luka Doncic, who is undeniably a top five to seven player at worst in the NBA. One of the all-time genius pick-and-roll creators already, even though we never see the Kyrie Luka pick-and-roll or seldom. I thought that would be like a big tentpole of their offense in crunch time. I, I just, it's a dumb thing, but... But I like you know what? I, you know, never mind. I was gonna. I was gonna. I'm go a big on a, body language guy, Zach. So I, I, I appreciate that too. I and I like that you shouted that out. Let's give Lucas some love for some good body language. I like. Speak, that. Speaking of shoutouts, I just a couple. Of, just here's some random things I need to get off my chest. Number one, I did enjoy last night Stan Van Gundy just praising the Pelicans' roster construction and crediting Trajan Langdon for every single part of it and just not even mentioning Griff's name. I thought it was like Richard Jefferson, the king of petty, would have been very happy about that. Number two, the Jason Kidd yelling at Tim McMahon for like a totally innocuous question was weird. Number three, I don't know how you thought about this, and I am loath to even even peck at someone who forgot more about basketball and life international relations, world history, in the five seconds took me to say this sentence that I will ever know in my life. Didn't enjoy Greg Popovich getting on the Spurs fans for booing Kawhi Leonard and being like, this is not who we are. Like, really? It's just sports, man. Like, they're booing a guy who left. And Mark Stein had a very interesting theory about that. I don't know if you saw this in his newsletter. His theory was Pop still feels a certain level of guilt about 
his role or the franchise's role in the fracturing of that relationship. And it was that speech was a manifestation of that. That was like, man, we're not at a high school game. Like, can we just, can we, I don't know. Those are just three random, totally random things I just need to say. On the first one, um, I, I, I do think that uh, Trajan Langdon and Swin Cash have done a good job with the Pelicans front office. I'll say that. Uh, On the second one, I'm always curious uh, when moments like that happen, like what was the trigger point? What was the trigger point for Jason for Jason Kidd to say that it was Tim McMahon's <laughs> smug face. That's what it was, and I no, loved him. But, it was Tim McMahon's smug face. No, he was I know, sick of looking like, at it. No, but I know. But like Tim operates a certain way. Like he operates a certain way. Like he's operated a certain way for years. Like what? What was the trigger point that night for that to come out? And then on the pop thing, Zach, you're like three weeks late for the take, man. You're I know. Like, I know. <laughs> okay, so pick another confusing team. Uh, I, you touched on one for me. And that's the Cleveland Cavaliers. I want you to just cook on the Cleveland Cavaliers. No. So I thought last year to start the season, Donovan Mitchell was awesome last year, all of last year. I thought to start the season, Darius Garland had to sort of figure things out. It was sort of a new thing for him to play in the NBA with another ball dominant guy who was a high usage player. By the end of the year, I thought he had figured it out. Mobley to me last year offensively like not a lot of real growth. You looked at his ISO numbers, his post up numbers, they they were not good. Uh, Jared Allen wasn't quite as good as his All Star year from the previous uh, year, and then there was the concerns about the fifth guy, the starter. Right, Karis LeVert shoots thirty nine percent from three, but still the the fit's not perfect. But then on paper. Spreadsheet wise, Winhurst called this. It's like they're a championship team on paper, on a spreadsheet, right? They've got all the offensive numbers. They got all the defensive numbers. Their net rating is great, but there's something missing. And they go get Struess, who has been, I think, awesome for awesome. them. Awesome, exactly. They've what unlocked. They they've unlocked this playmaking aspect, specifically the two man game with him and Mobley, that has been awesome. And and. Stan used to talk about this all the time, and I, I use it in in reference to bigs a lot, um, like a, like a Sabonis or like a Jokic or like a Shangun, where I talk about connectors, like bigs serving as hubs, but like wing players. You brought up Herb Jones earlier, and like that's that's an example of it. Like Max Struess, you watch Cleveland play, and he's just a connector. Like he's just making the right play. He's putting pressure on the defense because of his shooting, and you're like. This should be working. Evan Mobley has played better than last year, right? And to me, the reason it's not working is like the Donovan Mitchell, Darius Garland thing. It's just like hasn't been fully fleshed out this season. And some of that, of course, in and out of the lineup, there's been nights where Mitchell's off and Garland was hurt for a little bit. And I get all that. But like that dynamic is not, and it's not, I'm not saying there's a dynamic in in the sense of like a, a Blake Griffin, Chris Paul dynamic. I'm saying they are, two of the same size guards, right? Who need the ball, who they don't necessarily play a certain way, but like they, they, they play to score and to create in the same sort of manifestation. And so it's just like, it's just not completely working right now. And it doesn't quite make sense to me because of the other reasons. Like Jared Allen's been really good. You know, Karis LeVert hasn't shot well. He's been fine off the bench. Like, they've gotten enough from him as, like, that that 
super sub score off the bench. They've got enough. Struess has been great. Mobley's been great. So, like, if I'm not pointing fingers at Mitchell and Garland because the counting stats are fine, but it's just like that to me, you see some of the shot selection at times, and it's like, all right, we're we're kind of getting out of getting out of what we're trying to do. Now that the Pelicans have have I don't I don't want to say stabilize knock on wood because they've just never had any stable health but they appear to be on the way to being the team that a lot of us thought they could be or at least a solid good team. The Cavs may take over the mantle to me of the most interesting team to watch over the next 20 games. You know, you could throw the Clippers with Harden, thank God we haven't talked about them and the Warriors are going through their whatever they're going through. Cuz I totally agree with you. There are nights when I watch the Cavs and Struess has added just the side-to-side dynamism that he brings to get them out of the, just like the, okay, pick and roll, pick and roll, your turn, pick and roll. And there are games where like Mobley and Allen are, are throwing these big to big passes to each other and they're dunking them. And I look up the numbers. I'm like, oh, their offensive efficiency still sucks with those two guys on the floor. Like something just isn't, something isn't working. And I don't know. I honestly like don't even quite know what it is because it could just be all of every part of their offense, including that big to big stuff is just inconsistent. I I don't know, but something isn't their good. eye test quarters and six minute stretches and whatever are not translating to the kind of team they should be. Yes. That's it. There's stretches of games where they look awesome and you, they look like a team that on paper should be one of, I think, the five best teams in the NBA. And then there's stretches where you're like, ah, the offense just doesn't work. Here, Here's a question I have for you. And I, I can't say that it's like there's a right answer to this because they were a top 10 offense last year. But I, I think in some ways, like the key to... The long term, let's say this Garland, Allen, Mobley thing like is a long term thing. The key to me is like Mobley at some point has to be able to stretch the floor and shoot threes. That to me unlocks a lot. Or play center. A lot. Or play center. Right. But then you're, you're eliminating Jared Allen from the equation. Why are you doing that, Zach? I've not uh, look. Jared Allen has been great, other than the playoffs last year, where Mitchell Robinson took the spreadsheet that Brian Windhorst talked about and ate it, and just crumpled it up and ate it. And was like eh, enough with your spreadsheet. Um, I don't know something. Something just isn't. I agree with you. But um, last question, and I'll let you go. Point differential became the hot button topic in the league last week as the as the group stages wound down. We had Hacka Drummond. We had the Bulls whining in seemingly every one of their tournament games about teams running up the score against them. Like, if you're whining about the third straight team running up the score against you, you might actually be whining about your own performance in the in-season tournament. Um, I I have not yet heard, like, a good alternative tiebreaker to point differential. I understand. Um, I actually didn't even... I liked Hacka Drummond. I liked the score. Like, I liked teams playing until the end of games. Uh, I thought that was... Good theater. I thought it was cool. Even Devin Booker. I don't know if you saw Devin Booker's quotes about it. He was like, I like it. Like, aren't we supposed to play hard till the end? With the caveat that at some point, some star player is going to get injured at the end of one of these games. And it, that is going to now, that is going to elevate the volume of this. But I just wonder, and you can't, it's not just a point differential tiebreaker discussion. 
it's a broader discussion of how could you change the whole thing structurally so that that isn't the tiebreaker. It's not just keep the same structure and use a different tiebreaker. It could be, it could be anything. But what have your thoughts been about just the structure of the in-season tournament and point differential specifically? Yeah. Um, I've loved the in-season tournament. What I have appreciated about Adam Silver is that he has consistently been willing to tweak things. He's been willing to try things. And some things have worked really well. Like we have the same format of the play-in that we had when it first came out because it's worked really well. He's tweaked the All-Star game format this year because it has sucked. The in-season tournament has been an overall positive to me. I would expect there to be tweaks year to year. There will be. And so on the point differential, here's my comment on the point differential. I think the option is if you're going to play four games and four games only as part of the qualifier to get into the quarterfinals, if it's going to be capped at four games, let's cap the point differential. Because if there's an anomaly of a second night of a back-to-back or one team just has an insane you know, 21 of 42 shooting night and another team has an insane 7 of 35 shooting night, one team is going to get hurt. So let's cap it at 15 points. Let's just cap it. Another alternative. Let's play everybody twice in your group. Another alternative in five years. There's 32 teams. Let's change up the group format. Let's have this go for... I also think the timing of it could change. I I, I talked about this earlier today on... Uh, I think it was Scal and, and, and Frank's show on SiriusXM. You go back to that 20-game sort of... Uh, format that RJ and I talked about as being sort of like that's that's the sample size right as a player there are different points in the season where you feel extra excited I was always excited to play but there's different points in the season where there's extra excitement and there's different points in the season where there's a there's a lull if you use the Christmas day game as sort of a tent pole for the NBA season you use the all-star break as another tent pole and then you use the end of the season. I don't think it makes sense to do the in-season tournament between the all-star break and the end of the season, right? That's about playoff seating. So really, you have two opportunities to do it. You have an opportunity pre-Christmas, and then you have an opportunity to do it from Christmas to the all-star break. I like the idea of doing it after the Christmas break. The reason is, I always felt an, ever, an extra layer of excitement in, in November. It's the beginning of the season. You're figuring things out. You're problem solving. You're trying to get into a rhythm. Like it's, it's fun. That part of it is fun. Christmas day. Great. Holidays. Great. January one, new year's game. I always enjoyed them. And then you hit this lull in the season. So there could be an opportunity to stretch this thing out over six weeks going into all-star break. There's also an opportunity. If you want to start that first weekend in November, let's stretch it all the way to Christmas. So let's play eight games in, in pool play, right? Let's do let's do uh you know a home and home if it's geographical. Let's let's figure out a way to do this. I think they're they're a little limited in that logistically because of this commitment to Tuesday Friday. So if we're going to commit to Tuesday Friday then uh, okay. You're probably going to have a hard time playing eight games just because of the amount of games that are played and the amount of travel all that stuff. But if you're willing to negotiate a little bit on the day of the game 
I think you can stretch this thing out to eight. I think based on the reaction, my own personal sort of feelings about these jerseys and courts and nationally televised games around the in-season tournament, I'd love to see there be more than four group play games. And then I think the point differential doesn't matter as much because the anomaly of a 27-point loss doesn't stick out as much. First of all, the courts are good other than the red ones. I've grown All yes, the courts have grown on me. Thank I'm you. a fan. Um, Tuesday, Friday, you know, look, it's no secret that this is this property is going to be up for bidding uh, yeah. to various broadcast companies. So Tuesday, Friday is not permanently baked in necessarily to the structure of it. But it is in the NFL season to non-NFL nights. True. I get that. Yeah. And, and just, you know, I've even had people pitch like, to your point, if we get to 32 teams, we should just like pause the season and have a 32 team single elimination tournament. And as teams get eliminated, they resume their regular season schedules to so that there is no point differential. It's just, I don't know how you, but how do you do that? How do you have a schedule so flexible that it accommodates that? Like, I don't, I just, I don't, I, I haven't heard. Uh, I haven't read the article yet, but there was an article today that showed up on my timeline. I'm, I, I bookmarked it. The fact that they were able to pull this off, the first week of December with no game scheduled and then just like, all right, we got game scheduled. I don't think people understand the logistical nightmare of that. I mean, even to the point of like, hey, we got to book a block of rooms at a hotel in Miami. Like, it's difficult. It's difficult. Well, they're, the Wizards are staying. The Wizards are playing, I think, um, I believe the Wizards are playing the Knicks on Friday and they're staying in Brooklyn because they could not get a hotel that you fact, know, there's uh, nothing wrong with staying in Brooklyn. There's no, I'm to, but, but, but look, <laughs> if you could avoid going over a bridge to get to yeah. your NBA game in New York, you should do that. All right. JJ Reddick, you got to hey, go real quick, oh. real quick, real quick. Okay. I just want to say there's a lot of stuff that we had potentially talked about. That we didn't get to. All right. Okay. Thought we were going to talk about the Hawks today. That's okay. We don't have to talk <laughs> about the Hawks. I don't actually want to talk about the Hawks. I just want to, I saw this this morning. Since, Phoenix acquired Kevin Durant. When Kevin Durant and Devin Booker play, they are 15 and 2 and have a 126 offensive rate. And that's without Bradley Beal. And that excludes the uh, Western Conference semifinals against the Denver Nuggets. Correct. That's just regular season. That's just regular season. And look, I mean, I, I am now, I've had back injuries. And those things can linger. They can, unfortunately, as we've seen with a couple of players in the last few years, end up resulting in surgery, which I was always told every time I had a back injury, do everything you can to avoid surgery. That team, to me, has the potential to be elite. And maybe that doesn't manifest itself till later in the regular season. Maybe it doesn't manifest itself till the playoffs. But they're whatever they are, 12 and 8 right now in the Western Conference, sitting in fourth place. Phoenix Suns. I'm a believer. Are, are people disbelieving in the Phoenix Suns? Is that like a hot take that it you just not, unleashed? No, there's no, there's I just want to remind people. There's just not there's just not the buzz there for them. Yeah. Before the be season, really I had good. I had four teams in my inner circle of championship contention. Boston, Milwaukee, Denver, and Phoenix. And we all knew Phoenix was going to have some health issues and like their regular season record may not match its quality. 
but yeah, I, I don't I don't disagree with that. And we just hope Bradley Beal gets healthy and we get to see that that full team play. And the Hawks, I can't, I just can't, I can't. I'm so upset about the Hawks. I'm like emotional about the Hawks and how wrong I was about we'll the Hawks. For another day, JJ we'll Redick. Uh, you see him on ESPN. You hear him on ESPN. Old man in the three. Do you do the same dates every week? I, I listen to podcasts so late. So, I don't. So I don't yeah. Pay. So we have a Monday show. The old man of the three things. Things. That is, uh, yes, we alternate. Uh, half the episodes are with Nikias Duncan and Steve Jones from the Dunker Spot. The other half is with our guy Tim Legler. Legs. Yeah, so we alternate weeks on that uh, with with those three guys. That's every Monday, and that show typically is only about thirty to forty minutes. We touch on three relevant topics, and the way the format works, oftentimes it ends up being six or seven relevant NBA topics. And then our weekly interview show on the old man of the three typically comes out on Thursday. Uh, but, you know, depending on holidays, game schedule, all that stuff, sometimes we stretch it to Friday. Which I have done once before, probably your lowest rated episode of the season. But uh, was it your beautiful? Performed well, Zach. Performed well. I'm not going to tell you who the lowest rated one was this season. I don't want to throw anybody under the bus. But if you go to our YouTube channel, JJ Reddick YouTube channel, yes, I'm sending people to JJ Reddick YouTube channel. Sure. You can find out who our lowest rated interview was. I don't do the YouTube podcast thing. I don't get it. I I just don't get it. But they have forced me to do it. And so now I have to like take a shower sometimes yeah. before I do it like it's I don't get it I don't but I'm old I don't understand how young people consume media I don't I don't I, I guess people like like I mean you know what I'm gonna sit in front of my screen and watch these guys move their mouths for an hour and 10 minutes Zach you know what I realized three years ago three and a half years ago when I was still at the ringer and the ringer finally agreed to allow us to tape a couple of our podcast interviews we taped with Zion, and then we taped with Jimmy Butler and Duncan Robinson. And the Duncan one came out the week after the world essentially shut down. But the realization was audio doesn't go viral. Video goes viral. This is what our lives have, have come to. What goes viral? All right, JJ, go back to your life. I'm Thank, you, you. <laughs> Thank you, sir. Thank you, sir. All right. Thanks, Zach.